Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from My Killer, a supernatural crime thriller written by Gary Sherbell. Joel Marcus, a young successful Manhattan DA, stuck in a loveless marriage, is with his beautiful DA girlfriend when he rescues an elderly Haitian woman from muggers. She rewards him with a voodoo ceremony. Now when he dies, his spirit will survive and pass into the one nearest him. When he is in fact soon murdered, his spirit does pass into the one nearest him, the black hitman who murdered him. While trying to convince loved ones he's still alive, he's being sought by the police as the prime suspect in his own murder. At the same time, he's in a unique position to learn who the real murderer is, the one who paid for the hit. He's also in a unique position to learn, as a white man, what it's like to be a black man in today's America. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from My Killer. Prologue At 6 p.m., Henry Nance, known in the A-Man gang as H-Man, got a text from his boss, Arthur, the A-Man himself. It read, Look out, H. Mucho fireworks coming. Los Amigos, bring Uncle Willie. It almost made Henry smile. A-Man remembered. Seven years ago for his 18th birthday, Henry's Uncle Willie, retired numbers racketeer, gave him a gun. A brand new twenty-two. Knowing that his nephew was just starting out in the drug trade and might need it someday. In the seven years since, he hadn't used the gun once. Hadn't needed to. Never even carried it, except for occasional target practice which made him a pretty good shot, in case it ever mattered. Tonight it might finally matter, with the Chico gang, Los Amigos, trying for weeks now to muscle in on A-Man territory, not with plain muscle, but with firepower, fireworks, to scare the A-folks off, of which Henry himself was a recent target. Just last night in the streets, minding his own work business, he suffered a near-death experience, a pair of bullets whizzed past his head, inches from his ear. They had Chico written all over them, maybe fired with the expectation of doing damage, or just to send a warning. Same difference. If it happened again, Henry himself would now have to respond in kind, with shots fired in the shooter's general direction, at least as a warning. At 7 p.m., Henry left his Harlem home, heading to a corner about ten blocks north where he supervised the work of a half a dozen A-man sellers. Uncle Willie was firmly tucked behind his waistband, right up front, the recommended location for fast access. Fortunately, it was a night in mid-May, still cool enough to wear a light jacket. He had it halfway zipped to hide the gun, without drawing suspicion that he was carrying. But it wasn't suspicion from Chico and his boys he feared. On the contrary... If he had his way, he'd like them to know he was equipped for combat. No, the suspicion he feared raising was with the third gang in the game, the NYPD. And with that gang, he was already suspected, just from being a young black male walking along at night, alone, on a dark street. What good could he possibly be up to? He couldn't afford to add to this suspicion baseline. A visible gun was totally to be avoided. A visible bulge, suggesting the same, was problematic. Best was a gun fully hidden or covered up with a jacket. 
no cause for suspicion there. That is, no legal cause. Or going with the legal lingo he picked up, no probable cause to allow a search. Not that that annoying little obstacle would usually stop a member of the third gang from doing their searching thing. Adding to his feeling of NYPD vulnerability, at the moment, as he was briskly walking along, he was totally alone, on a residential street. No potential witnesses present who could maybe whip out a cell phone to video some NYPD bullying, or worse. In a way, he feared the NYPD even more than Chico. With Chico, there was perhaps a greater risk of a fatal outcome to any encounter. But with the NYPD, there was the additional threat of a very unpleasant and lengthy incarceration for illegal gun possession, especially with his prior record of arrests. And they were out there all right, stopping and searching, whoever and wherever, probable cause or improbable cause. Henry was aware. This third gang in blue knew everything that was going down, thanks to a slew of steady civilian informers, one-time deal-cutters and professional undercover blues. They knew all about the turf war, and knew that meant more gun-carrying and more shooting, especially wild reckless shooting, designed mostly to warn, which meant more danger to the innocent bystander public from all those haphazard projectiles back and forth. That was their real concern. Henry long ago concluded, not the danger the shooters presented to each other. Indeed, a week ago, Henry had learned firsthand what the Blue Gang was all about when two cops stopped him for no reason, and one searched him. Officer Brown, was it? This one even punched him in the face when he left, maybe because Henry had kind of physically resisted the search enough to make it take more time, though the cop had managed to complete the task anyway, and after all of that found nothing. Zip. Which Henry figured would piss, and in fact had really pissed the blue man off. Hence the payback punch. So while Henry was right to be fearful in general of the NYPD that night, perhaps even more than he needed to be of the Chicos, he also knew that he, in particular, had to be fearful, in particular, of the two cops who stopped him the other night. Sure, he had passed the search test then, but that punch by the lead officer told him that they were not at all pleased with his attitude, and in fact were probably so disappointed in him that they would now be only too happy to come back for another round, when this time the search results might hopefully be more productive. But Henry knew, would be. Which is why it would have been no surprise to Henry that when an NYPD patrol car turned the corner and started to come down the street he was on, its occupants were those same two officers. Behind the wheel at 28 years of age, Officer Tom Carranza of Latino descent, but decidedly Caucasian skin tone, and seated next to him, at 33 years of age, the Caucasian all-the-way officer Rudy Braun. Not quite brown, as Henry had closely recalled it from his name tag. The pair weren't exactly looking for him only, of course, but for anyone else, too, who looked like trouble. But in the back of their minds, especially in the mind of the searcher-puncher Braun, it would be that much sweeter if they could find that Nance again for round two. Henry did hear a car coming down the street behind him. No big deal in that. But it became a big deal when he heard the car slow down and start to go along with him at the same pace, side by side. He didn't dare turn his head even slightly and look at it to see if it was NYPD. Nor did he pick up his pace. Either way, he'd be acting suspiciously, like he had something to hide. 
No, he'd just walk straight ahead, pretending not to notice or care. But what Henry didn't know, couldn't yet know, was that it was those same two officers who seemed to need no further suspicion to prompt a new search confrontation. Officer Braun had been the first to spot the African-American male, who might be Nance, and immediately told Carranza to slow down, which he did. Carranza knew that, for now, it meant keeping pace with a young male walking along, and he did that, too. After a moment of closer observation, Braun asked his partner, Isn't that Nance? Carranza snuck in a look of his own, for as long as he could, given that he was driving. Could be, was the most he could say. But Braun needed no further convincing. He knew who it was. I bet he's carrying, Braun said, then added, this time. The turf war had heated up in the last few days, since they first stopped Nance, and the likelihood was greater that Nance had readied himself militarily. As usual, and that included the last stop of Nance, Carranza would not stand in the way of his partner's aggressive tactics, but he did, as usual, interject an initial note of going by the book caution. We got no cause to stop him, Carranza said, matter-of-factly. He might have added, like last time but he was not of a mind to further irritate his determined partner with legalistic monkey wrenches. Besides, he had to admit that his partner's pushy ways had sometimes resulted in a collar that he himself would not have earned, hampered by his bookish caution. So when his partner now said stop the car, Carranza obeyed, without hesitation. A moment later, Braun was outside the car heading for Nance at a fast pace. Though he'd heard the car stop and the car door open and close, and the footsteps of the approaching officer. Henry continued to pretend that none of this was any concern to him, trying hard not to hand over to the blues on a silver platter any basis for suspicion. Henry continued to walk forward at the same pace. But when Braun was about ten feet from Nance, he called out, Hey, Nance! Henry could no longer play deaf and dumb. He stopped, turned, and faced the officer, whom he immediately recognized as the officer who had stopped him a week ago and searched him, and punched him, for no legal reason. You, Henry said, what do you want now? Braun pointed to a nearby wall. Against the wall, he demanded. I want to see what you got. Henry didn't obey, didn't move an inch, just stood where he was facing the officer. As Officer Carranza got out of the car to join his partner, Braun went on. I said against the wall. Henry still didn't obey. As Carranza approached, Braun pulled out his gun from his holster and pointed it directly at Henry. Henry instantly knew he had just a second, maybe two, to consider his options and make a decision. He thought, or perhaps no more than felt, that the officer might just shoot him. He'd already committed an unprovoked violent act against him, the punch in the face a few nights ago. There were no witnesses now, other than his brother officer, and Henry did have a gun of his own which a lying cop could claim had been pulled first. Or he thought, felt, if the officer didn't shoot, then at the very least he'd be searched and would be facing serious time for illegal gun possession. Yeah, the search might not be legal, but he wasn't about to count on some judge finding it that way and throwing out the evidence like he heard they sometimes did. Henry capped his more or less two seconds of decision-making with an act that was derived as much from impulse as calculated thought. He stuck his hand in his jacket, gripped his gun, pulled it out, and fired once at the officer. He aimed for the officer's shoulder. He didn't want to kill him, 
just stop him from maybe killing him, and certainly arresting him for gun possession. At least now he'd have a chance to get away. And then, what? Well, he hadn't thought that far ahead. Henry's aim had been good, befitting his practice at it. Hit in the shoulder, as Henry had planned, Officer Braun immediately fell to the ground, bleeding, as Henry ran off at top speed, no longer concerned about looking suspicious. At the same time, Carranza came to the aid of his partner. When he'd approached, he'd taken out his own gun, but put it back as he knelt down. Medical assistance for his partner was now his priority. He took out his phone to make the necessary calls. Arresting Nance would come later. But Braun had a different view of the priorities. I'm okay. Just my shoulder. He said to his partner, wincing from the pain. Put my gun back in my holster. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from My Killer. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon, Audible, and iTunes.